Good morning, everyone. Please stand for the reading of God's word. The scripture text that we will be examining for today is Psalm 128, verses 1 through 6. This can be found on page 298 of the Blue ESV Bibles. Those Bibles are located in the back pocket cover of the seats in front of you. We ask that you take those Bibles home if you do not have one available to you at home. And once again, we'll be reading Psalm 128, verses 1 through 6. A song of ascents. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Thus says God's word. Thank you, Raven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. This is what you have spoken. God, it's, it is chock full of promises, Lord. And so as, as Pastor David led us in repentance, Lord, I, I want to continue that theme and ask you that you would forgive us, your people, for the many, many times that we have read promises in your scripture and have failed to take them as our own, Lord. And so we pray that as we consider these great promises, Lord, and, and the, the, the things that you lay out on a, on a feasting table before your people, that we would just embrace them, Lord, that we would hear them, that we would say, that belongs to me because it was purchased for me by Christ. So, Lord, that would be our heart today as we hear your word. And, Lord, I pray that you would just cause your word to do its work in our heart, that we would, um, Lord, just be ready to be changed, to to think differently, to to have our very thoughts, our habits, our uh, the, our. our strongholds demolished, all of those things changed, Lord God, to be transformed, to be more like you. So we ask all this in your name. Lord, I pray especially for myself, Lord, that, that I would preach accurately that the, the, uh, the great things that your word says, Lord, that I would leave nothing out and put nothing in, but I would preach it just as you've written it. And so, Lord, I thank you for that. I pray that all of my hearers would be divinely enabled to hear rightly, Lord. I thank you for this miracle that's about to take place. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Um, I want to say hi to Diane. Now, don't look at talk to Deborah. I'm talking to you. So good to have Diane here. So I'm glad you're here. It's good to see you. Um, Diane is a world traveler, and so every once in a while we get her to drop in, and so it's good to have you here, Diane. Um, so we're studying, as you know, if you've been here for several weeks, the Songs of Ascent. Um, this is a collection of psalms from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, uh, 15 psalms, and they were, they were compiled for a very specific purpose. And we've been thinking about that purpose. It, it, they were for Jewish pilgrims who were traveling to the temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem to um, offer sacrifice, to offer worship to the Lord. And this was their hymn book. This was their song book. It was compiled. And all of these, it's really interesting because they're called Songs of Ascent because they're going up the mountain to meet with the Lord. 
But we've, we've seen over and over how that they also, these songs also rise in their theme. From Psalm, 180, uh, Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, you see an upward climb in, in the, the, the gravity of the spiritual thought that's being presented. Now, while this is true of the entire series, it's interesting that you'll see little snapshots of that in smaller portions of the Scripture. And this is very true of what we read last week in Psalm 127 and what we're going to look at today in Psalm 128. Psalm 127, as you'll recall, told us what is crucial in building a house. It said it like this, verse 1, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. What's it telling us there? It's saying that without the Lord's plan, without the Lord's working, our work becomes empty and meaningless. No matter how sincere we are, no matter how skilled we are, without God, it will certainly come to absolutely nothing. And the psalm, that same psalm, Psalm 127, later focuses on the building of a house in entirely domestic terms. It says this in verse 3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. And, and what that told us, we talked about this last week, is that God builds a kingdom by building families. Families, therefore, are the building blocks of a kingdom. And, and, and with God, his kingdom building never causes him to forget that when families come together, it forms a kingdom. What I'm saying is, in the big picture of things, God's goal, if you want to call it that, to build a kingdom, he never forgets about the individual elements that make up that kingdom. Being a part of a family, therefore, is one of the great privileges that God allows us to participate in. And this applies to everyone. Everyone in this room right now, everyone in the kingdom of God, that applies to. It's not just married people or those with children, because it applies to our participation within the church. What I'm saying to you is that the church should be like, it should act like, it should even look like a family with deep intimacy, with burden sharing, with encouragement. It should have all the very best elements that a natural family should have. Psalm 68.6, I referred to this verse last week, but tells us that God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. And so the gospel is, one of the promises of the gospel is that people who are wandering in parched deserts in sin under the power of the enemy will, will escape that solitude and they will enjoy real safe community within the church. Psalm 128 brings this theme of domestic blessing even closer. It shows us how our ascent to the Lord is to be enjoyed in and supported by both natural and supernatural family. So what I'm talking about there is husbands, wives, children, parents, and the church. The previous psalm ended with a blessing. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with children. And Psalm 128, that we're going to look at this morning, further expands on this idea of a blessed life. So let's kick into it. This is Psalm 128, verse 1. It says, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, 
who walks in his ways. Now, we're going to notice three things about this first verse. Notice first, the condition of God's blessing, or what is required to receive it. Second, the broad application of this promise, who exactly gets that blessing. And thirdly, the definition of the condition. How is the blessing of God practically attained by us? So let's look at these in order. First, the condition of God's blessing is that we fear the Lord. Now, if you're not familiar with that term from Scripture, you may be asking, does this mean that we are to be afraid of God? And let me uh, begin by saying, if you are an unbeliever, if you are not submitting your life through uh, repentance and obedience to Christ, then yes, absolutely you're supposed to be afraid of God because you're under God's wrath because of your rebellion towards what he has commanded, towards what he's called you to. And all you have to look forward to in your state of rebellion is a judgment of fire. And so your problem isn't, if you look at a spectrum of people who are outside of Christ, your problem isn't that you're scared of God, or on the other end, that you're indifferent to him, but that you don't properly fear him. That's the root of your problem. See, many fear hell and its torments. If, if you talked enough about hell and, and you, know, you were you know, a hellfire and brimstone kind of guy, you could, you could make somebody fear hell and probably manipulate them into making a commitment to Christ. But fearing hell and its torments is not the same thing as fearing God. They're dramatically different. Fearing God means that you are aware, you've become aware of how you have violated his holiness and you regret it. Yet your sorrow is not for your sake, in other words, what this is going to cost me, but your sorrow is for his sake, the offense that you have perpetrated against a holy God. Let me demonstrate it like this. Everyone can relate to this. A child who gets his, caught with his hand caught, his hand in the proverbial cookie jar, when mom clearly said, no, may be afraid, right? But the fear is only of the punishment that may be impending, or it may be of the loss of the cookie they so lusted after. But they don't fear offending the disrespected parent. And now, we've all been in that situation, we've all had children in that situation, and we know well that they may say anything, anything required to avoid the punishment, but we know that as soon as we turn our back, they're going to look for an opportunity to steal again, right? Has anybody demonstrated this in, in real life? I know I have. I've been both the offender and the offended in this situation, <laughs> raising four children. But what I want you to see about that scenario is this is how much of American Christianity works. We're told by well-meaning sometimes preachers to say or do anything to avoid the punishment of hell but our hearts are entirely unmoved by the fact that our sin has broken the heart of the Father, that it's separated us from Him, and that our sin even is so heinous, yes, your sin, my sin, is even so heinous that it brought about the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. See, true fear of the Lord is not about fearing the punishment that may come, but it's a fear 
that inspires reverence for the majesty of God's holiness. And it also inspires a gratitude for his abundant mercy toward us in Christ because we know it's completely undeserved. It inspires the dread of God's displeasure with us in our sin and our earnest desire for his approval of our good works and a longing for his fellowship, both in our suffering and in our deliverance. Charles Spurgeon said this, he said, the fear of God is the cornerstone of all blessedness. We must reverence the ever-blessed God before we can ever be blessed ourselves. And if we fear God, we may dismiss all other fears. One of the, you know, to, to try to illustrate this, I was looking, you know, when I was writing this this week, I was trying to think of ways to illustrate what I'm talking about. And I remember the story, some of you have ever, if you've ever seen the movie made in the early 80s, Chariots of Fire, you've seen this story. But fear of the Lord looks like Eric Little. Eric Little was a, a guy who was a missionary and his life tragically ended in a Japanese prison camp uh, uh, during World War II. He'd been a missionary to China. But before all of that, Eric Little was a Scottish Olympic runner who trained for the 100 meters in the 1924 games. And he was really favored to win. He was the guy that the, the hopes of the nation were pinned on. But Eric Little, being a, a solid and devout follower of Jesus Christ, when he found out that the race that he had trained so hard and so long to compete in was going to be held on the Lord's Day, he wouldn't run because it would violate his conscience. He would not do that. That was, that was a conviction of his. And he was called a fool by his nation. He was called a fool uh, in the press, even people in his nation were writing in the press that he was a traitor because he was their best hope for a gold medal in this event. He's called a fool, but but Eric Little did not back down from his decision. But in the providence of God, a runner dropped out of the 400-meter race, which incidentally would be held on a weekday. And Eric filled the slot instead, even though the race that he was going to run was four times longer than the event that he had trained for. But guess what? Eric Little won that race. And he even set a record of 47.6 seconds, which made, it took a long time for that record to be broken. And so you look at that story and you go, so he stands up for his convictions, called a fool, enters a different event, much harder event, and is, uh, is victorious. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, God's going to make you win all your sporting events if you fear the Lord. Obviously, this truth will work out in a thousand different ways for those who fear the Lord. But what I want you to see, what I prayed about at the very beginning, what I want you to see is that this is a truth. It's a promise of Holy Scripture nonetheless. No matter how it works out in your life, it's still a promise of Holy Scripture. Those who fear the Lord will be blessed. And the remainder of this psalm demonstrates this, reinforces this, puts a foundation under it. So second of all, who is it that receives the blessing of the Lord? Well, the scripture tells us, everyone who fears the Lord. And, and this is the whosoever of the gospel. Whosoever comes and, and everyone who fears the Lord, whosoever will, they are the ones that will be blessed 
by the Lord. There is no caste system like there is in Hinduism that designates some of us as superior and some of us as undesirable. You know why? Because we're all undesirables. There is no higher level caste in Christianity. Every one of us is unworthy. Every one of us is guilty. Everyone is sinners. No one stands innocent before God. All of us are undesirables. And yet, and yet, somehow, through the grace of Christ, we are brought near, even though we are utterly undesirable. So third, what does it look like to fear the Lord practically and attain the blessing and the bible tells us blessed is everyone who fears the lord those who walk in his ways so simply to walk in his ways now i'm gonna let the scripture kind of explain what this looks like to the fear of the lord and walking in his ways first john chapter 2 verse 3 it says and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments walking in his ways whoever says i know him but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. And by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So God is not interested in our excuses, our uh, you know, uh, the, the, all the, the reasons we will lay out for him, why we are the way we are. What God is calling us is to trust in his grace and to, and to submit our lives, to conform our lives to what he has commanded. Habitual, unrepentant sin is surely no sign of the fear of the Lord. You cannot say you fear the Lord if you're not dealing with the sin. And these things, this idea of the fear of the Lord and walking in his ways go hand in hand. The fear of the Lord is the internal operating principle of the true Christian life. It's the engine that runs the true Christian life. The corresponding outward expression of that internal principle is always walking in his ways, keeping his commandments, doing what pleases him, uh, walking in obedience. We can see this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, beginning. It says, walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So Paul is saying that we are to walk in, in a way that, that signifies that we're in the light and, and that, that light has fruit. The fruit of the light is goodness and rightness and trueness and, and that our goal as Christians is to try and discern what is pleasing to the Lord so that we can walk in such a way. So let me ask you, let's make this a little personal. What would it look like for you right now where you're at? You know you better than I know you. What would it look like for you to try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord? What would change in your conversations? What would change in your relationships? What would change in your habits if you were trying to discern what pleased the Lord? Now, what does the blessing look like when we fear the Lord and walk in his blessing? Well, first of all, it means an end to all futility and meaninglessness. The blessing of the Lord is the antidote 
for the vanity that Psalm 127 mentioned three times in the first couple of verses. Unless the Lord builds the house, those that build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Psalm 128 shows the alternative to that lifestyle of vanity outside of the Lord. Verse 2 says this, You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Now, we have farmers in our area. This is a big farm uh, uh, part of the country, and no farmer wants to plant crops in vain. No farmer that I know in this area says, I'm just going to throw some seed out there and see what happens. We'll just hope for the best. No, a, a farmer plants in hope. They want to see a harvest. And God promises his people that as they walk in the fear of the Lord, that they will receive just such a harvest. This verse says it clearly. You shall eat. You, it shall be well. There's no vagueness about that. Only solid assurance. There's nothing futile. There's nothing empty. There's nothing frustrating. There's nothing wasted. There's nothing unsatisfying. There's nothing vain. This is what the blessing of the Lord does. It brings full satisfaction to our hearts. I love the story of Samuel in the Bible. First Samuel it has this incredible story about how Hannah, his mother, prayed for children. God gave her a child after being barren, and she dedicated that child to the, to the service of God in the temple of God. And, and in that temple, God began to speak to Samuel, or in the tabernacle, rather, God began to speak to Samuel, and he began to, to follow the Lord and speak for the Lord and, and be committed to the Lord. And this is what um, the Bible tells us as he was growing. First Samuel 3.19, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. So Samuel walked in, in, in the fear of the Lord, and God blessed him by giving him a life that was entirely devoid of futility. He, he spoke, and God responded to, to his faith. He moved. None of his words fell to the ground. Now, why do we not have lives like this? Well, because we have a problem, and our problem is this. All of us, in the, in the famous words of Freddie Mercury... We want it all, and we want it now. We sometimes think only temporally, and that's a shame for people who are eternal, but, but we think only temporally, and we don't realize that much of the fruit of our labor will be eaten in eternity where it can never be taken away from us. Christianity, and we just don't think about this enough, we don't focus on enough, Christianity consists in looking away from this earth, not evangelistically. We are part of this world, and we, we are uh, you know, preaching the gospel and reaching out. But, but we look away from the system to find solutions in its values or in its systems. And we look toward another future perfect world where our citizenship is and, and a place from where we are waiting for our Savior to come. And Paul says this in Colossians, he says that we are to set our minds on things that are above and not on things of this earth. And next, Psalm 128 shows us that God's blessing is evident, I love this, in our covenantal family relationships. In this way, it echoes what Psalm 127 said about our children. It was once said that before the fall, paradise was man's home. 
But since the fall, home has been his paradise. What does that mean? It means that God tries to uh, inject the very best elements of the Eden life in our families. God's blessing always shows up most in our home. Verse 3 says, Your wife will be a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Now, what is the psalmist painting a picture of for us here? He's envisioning a husband who is hardworking, who's protective, who's teaching his family with patience and wisdom. He sees a wife who is faithful and productive and as joy-producing as a glass of fine wine. He sees children who are sturdy in their faith, sturdy in their, in, their, in their wisdom and productive, loaded with potential to do more than even their parents for the glory of God. Now, I know when I say that, that there's problems maybe in your mind with me saying that. Maybe your inner skeptic rises up. It's hard to accept this reality because some of you live with unbelieving sinful, maybe even abusive, and even unfaithful husbands and wives. Some of you have rebellious children or negligent and unloving parents. There are men and women who may feel like this doesn't apply to them because they're single or they're childless, both willingly and unwillingly. But again, our problem is that we've, we've allowed our thinking to be just bounded by just the material world. See, the promise from Scripture was that people who fear the Lord will be blessed in these ways. It doesn't exclude people whose estate is not ideal for them to be blessed in these ways. It just says that they will be. I may not know how Jesus will keep his promise, but the Bible from Genesis to Revelation assures me repeatedly that he will keep his promise. Amen? One time, Peter had said to Jesus, Hey, Jesus, we gave up everything to follow you, if you haven't noticed. What do we get for following you? And this was Jesus' response. Now, if it had been my response, can I just be real honest with you? I've been like, you knucklehead, you self-righteous, you know, thinking about yourself, that sort of thing. Wasn't Jesus' response. Listen to what Jesus said. It's powerful. Jesus said, And everyone who's left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands. Now let me pause and just tell you, what is Jesus focusing on? He's talking about people who, for the sake of the gospel, have left or have not been able to enjoy family. And he says, all the people who've left those things, for my sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. I can't tell you how Jesus is going to keep his promise to you if you're in one of those categories that I read earlier. But what I can promise is that Jesus is going to keep his promise to you. One reason I'm convinced that Christ will be faithful to his promise is found in the very next verse. It's awesome. It shows that God will grant his goodness to his people based on nothing found in this world. Psalm 128 verse 5, the first part of it says, The Lord Bless you from Zion. Now, the pilgrims hearing that promise on their journey, uh, when when these songs were being sung, they were lifted by that promise. 
For them, God was enthroned in power in the holiest place in the temple. But for us, what I want you to see, who have received the promise of the new covenant, for us, the temple and Mount Zion are a mere shadow that points to the substance of God's eternal throne in heaven. So no matter what, if you fear the Lord, this promise is that God will bless you out of heaven. His throne. Now, now why is that important to understand that distinction? Because God's throne cannot be shaken. His kingdom cannot be threatened or removed. Those who fear the Lord will be blessed from heaven while living on the earth and will be blessed in heaven when the Lord calls them home. And you can take that to the bank. But this verse, here's the good part. This verse is not all about heavenly blessings when the roll is called up yonder either. For the promise continues in in the last part of that verse. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Jerusalem represents for us in the new new covenant. the, The kingdom of God on earth experienced through the triumphant church. Now, I do not want to step on toes. I don't want to get in an argument. But I personally do not like, I, I reject views of the end times that portray things getting worse and worse with God's people hunkered down like frightened children just waiting for Jesus to evacuate us out of here before things get really, really too bad. Because I, I, I read the Bible and, I have to, and I'm processing those thoughts and I go, What? What? Our Lord is the king. He reigns. We're not here to hide, but to conquer in his name. Well, Mark, what if persecution comes? So what if they burn us at the stake? I pray that the flaming of our bodies will be the spark of a great revival that would burn for God's glory. People, when I was growing up in the late 70s and early 80s, people used to say, well, I read the back of the book and we win. But what they usually meant was we win because we're getting hella vacked out of here. But we don't win because we're escaping. We win because all of this belongs to him. And he died to redeem it all from a curse. And he's coming back to take what belongs to him. We may suffer, we may very well suffer, but we will not lose because he's already won. But there's more. The promise says that you will see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. And this means unstoppable progress, unstoppable advance, unstoppable peace for Christ's church, no matter how things may appear at any given time now. And I want to tell you, I want to see with these eyes the gospel succeed in as many individual lives many, many more times over before I die. There may be appear to be setbacks. Some hearts may become cold. Some may apostatize and even abandon the faith. Some may even die in their sin. But the church will be triumphant. Jesus is building his church, and the promise remains that the gates of hell will not prevail against her. The last verse, verse 6, says, May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Now this verse speaks loudly to the idea of God blessing families. 
Ginger and I are at the place where our kids are starting to get married off. And the next big thing on our calendar of life, hopes, and joys, and goals is seeing little grandbabies show up. We are so happy that that may soon happen at some point. And it's a good thing for God's people to desire a long life for that very reason. See, I want to see my grandkids grow up loving the same Lord that their fathers loved, loving the same Lord that their grandfather loves. I want to contribute to their spiritual growth and their discipleship hand-in-hand in partnership with their parents. I love Psalm 145, 4. It says, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. That's what I want to do with my grandkids. That's what I hope my, my kids do with their kids and their grandkids and just on and on and on as the gospel spreads through the sharp family for generations. That's what I hope. Paul said, to live is Christ. What was the other side of that verse? To die is gain. We know that well, don't we? Sometimes I think we, we have such a, a bleak view of the future of the church and the gospel that all we think is to die is gain. But that's not what Paul said, is it? He said to live is Christ. And in that same portion of Scripture, he said, it's better for me to be here for your sake. And so what if we stopped thinking about mansions in heaven, which are great, and they're there, and we're going there. I'm not at all creating a new doctrine here. They're great. But what if we said, Lord, there is breath in my body today, so it must be better for me to be here for the sake of all the people that I love. Paul said to live is Christ. There is so much to be done here in this life, and I want to be around to see it. I want to see new spiritual children born into the kingdom of God at Northridge Life Church. I want to see them go out and give up their lives for Jesus Christ and to bring more new lives into the kingdom. My desperate, heartfelt prayer is may God do it. I long for the return of Christ, but I am not ready for some rapture just so I can escape. I am prepared this very moment to die, but I am also not ready to roll over and just give up the fight of faith. This is what the psalmist said in Psalm 27. He said, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, right here, right now. This chapter ends with this benediction. Peace be upon Israel. And peace be upon Israel should be our constant prayer. And and when I say that, I'm not talking about in some geopolitical or nationalistic sense. I'm not talking about a modern Middle Eastern country. I'm referring to the holy Israel of God as Paul was in Galatians. Here's where I get that phrase, Galatians 6.15. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. The Israel of God, the true Israel, consists of everyone from every nation who calls upon the name of the Lord for salvation, who boast only in the cross of the Lord Jesus, whereby the world was crucified to them and they to the world. 
The Israel of God is the church of the living God. Let me tell you, I long to see her at peace. I long to see her walking in purity. I long to see her grow into the image of Christ. And may this always be our prayer. Peace be upon the Israel of God. May it always be our song. It's easier, I've found, to criticize the church. Have you ever noticed that, how easy it is to criticize the church? Many of you have probably found how easy it is to criticize me. That's just the way, that's just the, way the game is played. It's easy to criticize the church as though that we ourselves were no part of her pollution or corruption. But how much better is it to pray for her, to plead with God to be glorified through her. In fearing the Lord, we shall always be blessed. Walking in his ways, we'll be satisfied. We'll eat from the labor of our hands. We'll dwell in blessed homes, blessed families. We'll be added to God's glorious heavenly family. Blessings shall come to us from heaven, and we'll see the church prosper as many, many generations are added to the Israel of God. Would you stand with me? We are about to make our way to the table of the Lord to receive the Lord's Supper. And I just want you to think about what we've talked about today, that God has called us to... to Uh, the blessing of fearing him and walking in his ways. And if there's anything that should inspire the holiest reverence for us, in us for the Lord, it is the fact that, that though we are, as I said earlier, undesirable, Jesus desired us and he proved it by coming to the cross and dying for us, completely unworthy. If you haven't figured this out yet, there was absolutely nothing in you. And there is, at this moment, nothing in you that made you worthy of the death of the Son of God. Not a single thing. You ain't that good. I don't care how much money you give to St. Jude's. I don't care how many little old ladies you help across the street. Nobody's that good to, to warrant the death of the Son of God. And yet, he looked at you the quarters of time before the foundation of the earth, the Bible says, and he says, I want you. I want you. Now, some of you are hearing me saying that, and you've never responded to that. And today, the Bible says, the day is the day of salvation. Today is the day when your life could be utterly changed by saying, okay, I'm not fighting this anymore. I'm turning my life over to the Lord Jesus. And if you would like to talk about that more, I would love to speak with you after church. And we can, we can help you with that. For the rest of you, I just pray that you would take a moment, even right now, and consider the table to which you're coming. And let reverence, holy reverence, holy fear, as the Bible terms it, rise in your, in your heart that God, the creator of all the heavens and the earth, saw it necessary saw it, and, and was willing to do so to come and die in your place and rescue you from sin. And let it inspire the, the fear of the Lord so that you might walk in his ways, so that you might be blessed in the blessing of the Lord. Let's just take a minute and consider this great reality. Examine ourselves.
discern the body of the Lord Jesus. We've spent some time in repentance today, but as you consider those things, maybe take a moment confess that you have not taken the death of the Lord Jesus seriously. Maybe you've been casual about being a part of his family. Just confess that to him and let him restore you to faith, to awe, to the holy fear, the reverent understanding of what he has done. And as you consider those things, when you're ready, just come and receive these elements. Take them back to your seat, and we'll take them together. Paul writes for us in the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, after supper, he took a cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Take the cup. Lord, we give thanks for the gift of your holy sacrifice. We thank you for the blood of the covenant that renews us. We thank you for the brokenness of your body that gives us new life. Lord, we pray that we would walk worthy of the calling we received in you, that we would walk in the fear of the Lord, that we'd walk in obedience to your commands, and that we would be pleasing to you in all we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'd place your hands in a receiving position, I'll pronounce this benediction over you. The Bible says the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.